Well, it's good to be back a second week. Last week was a blank. I was so nervous. I'm not sure anybody was here, if I was here. But I'm reasonably sure that you're all here this time. <laughs> uh, well, we are in a series called Vulnerability. And uh, to get us started, I'd like to play kind of a little quiz, a little game with you, if you don't mind. Now, I'm going to apologize in advance. A couple of the photos that I'm going to show you, they look much better when I found them than what they look like now up here. But we'll do better in the future on that. But here's the deal. As I mentioned one of these things, if it's true of you, hold your hand up and keep it up. Okay, it's not going to be long. Don't worry. You're not going to need somebody to hold your elbow. But just keep your hand up, and we'll see how this ends up. So here we go. First picture. Now, that is a moat. So the question to you is how many of you have a moat around your property? Hands? Okay. We're, we're, we're gonna, let's go to the second one. Uh, this is a thermal imaging security system. How many of you have a thermal imaging security system at your house? And you that have, you're like, I'm not telling you, Randy, you might break into my house. <laughs> okay, still nobody. Okay, let's go to the third. Ah, the African Guinea security system. How, ma how many of you have this? <laughs> I do. <laughs> they will warn you, but that's all they do. <laughs> of course, they warn you of everything, squirrels, anything at all. Th uh, next one. Ah, a watchdog. How many of y'all have a watchdog? I have a dog that will watch when the burglars come in and when the burglars leave. That's, that's all he would do, probably lick them and kiss them. And, uh, and finally, I used to have a bad one, but not anymore. And this, you, you can see it a little bit better, but, it, but it's an old rusty lock. How many of you now, how many of you, you're supposed to keep your hands up, and I, I failed, I sinned against you. Uh, how many of you have at least one lock on a window or a door in your home, apartment, whatever. Can you see that? So every, every hand sort of went up by now. All right. A little way to start having fun. Why do we have these things? Why do we have security systems? Why do we have locks on doors and windows and et cetera? Why? Simply, we want to feel a little less vulnerable. Uh, we, we know we're vulnerable. Now, statistically, living in Frederick County, we're actually pretty darn safe. You probably leave your doors and windows open all the time. But please don't do that because I mentioned it this morning. So... We want to feel just a little more vulnerable, and we fear feeling vulnerable, okay? We, we, we want to feel a little more secure, I should have said. So what we want to do in this message is we want, to, we want to look at why do we fear vulnerability, and we do fear it. Now, at the same time, some of you can recall situations, occurrences in your life. You probably have these uh, right now going on. There's certain venues, you know, when you're with certain people, certain places, even though you're vulnerable and you're, you're extra vulnerable with these people, yet it is the most wonderful feeling in the world because you know in this place with these people, I can be vulnerable, I can be more transparent than what I would normally be, and yet I'm safe. I'm vulnerable, but with these people, I'm safe. It's one of the most wonderful feelings in the world. So I want to kind of differentiate between them. There is, a, there is an uncomfortable fear of vulnerability that's unhealthy in a sense because it's based on what's occurred in our universe, this thing called sin. Okay, But then there's a healthy vulnerability. It's a vulnerability that's based on loving relationships. It's here now. It's not in perfect form yet, but it's going to be here forever, and it's going to be in perfect form. So we want to start out by saying, you know, trying to understand why do we fear vulnerability? Now, there's good reason to fear complete vulnerability right now, and I want to kind of take you through some of those. To start us, though, 
I want to take you way back to the beginning of what I'm going to call unhealthy or uncomfortable vulnerability. Vulnerability always existed because God himself, some of you are not, you're not going to believe this, you're not going to get this, but God himself is the most vulnerable person in the universe. You say, Randy, that's, that's crazy, man. He's almighty. He's, he's untouchable. He's indestructible. That's true. But because he is the most loving person in the universe of necessity, he's also the most vulnerable person in the universe. Listen, if, if you, how many of you have kids in here? Can I see your hands? Okay. If your child is sick or suffering in some way, maybe a crisis in their life, maybe a personal problem, whatever it is, if your child is suffering, are you suffering? Can I, can I see your hands? Are you suffering? Of course, because you love them. That's another message. We'll deal with that more in depth next week. But let's just kind of get our minds focused that there's a kind of a vulnerability that's natural and healthy. There's one that's the result of what's happened. So let's go to Genesis and see where uncomfortable, unhealthy, painful vulnerability started. Genesis chapter 3. Of all the wild creatures the eternal God had created, the serpent was the craftiest. Serpent to the woman. Is it true that God has forbidden you to eat fruits from the trees of the garden? No, serpent. God said we are free to eat uh, the fruit from the trees in the garden. We are granted access to any variety and all amounts of fruit with one exception. The fruit from the tree found in the center of the garden, God instructed us not to eat or touch the fruit of that tree or we would die. Pause for a minute. Did that sound like we would die like God's going to lightning bolt them or did it sound more like it could be something that would organically bring destruction happening in them. The second is, is the truth. Let's go on. S the serpent's response now, die? No, you'll not die. God is playing games with you. The truth is that God knows the day you eat the fruit from that tree, you will awaken something powerful in you and become like him, become like God, possessing knowledge of both good and evil. The woman approached the tree eyed its fruit and coveted its mouth coveted its mouth it's oh it's mouth watering wisdom granting beauty she plucked a fruit from the tree and ate she then offered the fruit to her husband who was close by and he ate as well suddenly their eyes were open to a reality previously unknown for the first time they sensed their what is the word vulnerability, vulnerability. pause up to this time we don't know how much time God had been interacting with Adam and Eve. He had created this perfect world for them, this beautiful garden he plants that puts them in. And he was coming daily, teaching them progressively. And the best that we can tell, they, they had no experience of vulnerability whatsoever. So, all of a sudden, that changes. For the first time, they sensed their vulnerability. And they rushed to hide their naked bodies, stitching fig leaves into crude loincloths. Then they heard the sound of the eternal, the eternal God, walking in the cool, misting shadows of the garden. The man and his wife took cover among the trees and hid from the eternal God. God calling to Adam, where are you? When I heard the sound of you coming in the garden, I was afraid because I am naked, so I hid from you. So here we have the start of vulnerability, the sense of vulnerability, the start of fear, and the start of a TV show, Naked and Afraid. All... <laughs> I'll have, I'll have too many of you knew about the show bad folks I'm just kidding so we see that this vulnerability this sense of vulnerability didn't exist we have to get that in mind 
were they technically vulnerable with God? Yes, they, they were honest, they were open. God was honest and open with them, but they didn't have any fear. It was a healthy vulnerability. It's like you with those that you know love you and are devoted to you no matter what. You can be more transparent and vulnerable with them, and it's one of the most wonderful, exhilarating experiences that we can have. But there's an uncomfortable vulnerability when we feel we, we could be threatened, we could be hurt. And that gets us to the why, so let me jump right in. Why are we afraid of being vulnerable? Well, there's a lot of obvious reasons. First of all, familiarity with pain. I mean, you know, for most of us, the first thing we experienced when we came into this world was, was somebody slapping us to get us to cry. That's not a good introduction, you know. We become familiar with pain from our earliest days. Listen to this verse from Romans chapter 8, verse 20, 22. It says, For we know that every creature groans with us also and travails in pain even to this time. So pain is something that every living being experiences. We know it from our earliest ages. We, we know what it is to have physical pain. We know what it is to have relational pain. We know what it is to have stress, worry, economic problems, any kind of pain you can imagine. We experience it early. We experience it more or less constantly. And it's the, the plight of every single living being on this planet. And we know this. So we're afraid to be vulnerable because we don't want to be hurt. We know what it feels like to be hurt. We know what it feels like to be betrayed or abandoned. We know what it feels like to be slandered or mocked or made fun of. We, we know what it feels like to be threatened and bullied. We know that we can be hurt. And it's the reason we're so afraid of being vulnerable. We, we try to put our guards up every way we can because we just don't want to be hurt. And we know that pain is a, is a reality. We're familiar with it. We know the experience, and we don't like it. The second reason that we're afraid of vulnerability is the reality of evil. We live in a world where you and I, we try not to think about this stuff, but you and I know every single night, every day, every hour, something terrible happens to somebody. Some vicious crime is committed. Some, some sort of a hatred is formed. Some kind of a cruel, heartbreaking word is said. We know this is the world we live in. It's full of evil. There's hatred. There's war. There's crime. There's all kinds of things that are the result of evil. Listen to this verse that was two passages, one from Ecclesiastes. It says, the hearts of all people are full of, what is the word? Evil. And there is folly in their hearts during their lives, then they die. The book of Romans chapter 3 says this, just as, is written, just as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. Evil is reality. We're not fools. We know that evil exists. We know that there, there are people that would like to do us harm, that would like to do as much injury to us as possible. So, consequently, we have locks on everything, and we make precautions, and we try to be as the least vulnerable that we can. Third reason that we're afraid of being vulnerable is that we're, we're just not certain about God. Ever since Satan slandered God, and if you really pick back through that passage we read, it's Satan coming and telling Adam and Eve that you can't trust God. He's lying to you. He told you that if you eat of that one tree, that you'll die. The day you eat of it, you'll die, it says in a lot of translations. And Satan tells him, he says, you're not going to die at all. You, you'll, you'll become like God yourself. He doesn't want you to have equality with himself. He doesn't want to share power with you. He wants to keep you down. He wants to be needed. He needs to be needed by you guys. And so he comes lying about God and saying that God is a liar. And Adam and Eve trust this finite created being rather than the infinite eternal creator that had given them everything, this beautiful life. Nevertheless, you have to understand what was happening there. 
Adam and Eve had perfect trust in God, faith in God, trust in God. They always did his will because they trusted him entirely. That was shattered. And they started asserting, like we all have done in our lives, at their, their own will instead of God's. So this brings uncertainty. We, we have uncertainty about God. We don't know if we can trust him. We don't know if he really understands what it's like to be human. We don't really know. There's certain areas of our life. Come on, let's be honest. We're certain areas of our life we think, ah, all things considered, I think I'm going to handle that one my own way, God. I don't think you know how hard this area is. And I, I think I'll be okay if I just kind of do this a little bit my way instead of your way. We, we don't really trust that he always knows what's best, always wants what's best, and it all started in the Garden of Eden, and it still affects us today. There are some people, you know, many times they're very intelligent people, and they don't even acknowledge that God exists. They, they'll, they'll kind of say, well, you know, maybe he's there, maybe he's not. Now, I always have a hard time with that because the Scripture says in Romans 1, 18 through 21, that every human actually intuitively knows that God's there. And when you think about it, when, when I look at a car, I drive a 2008 Infinity. This is not, not very fancy, but I like it. I don't know who made it. I, I never saw the makers of that Infinity, okay? But I know somebody made it. I know it wasn't a tornado blowing through a junkyard that put that infinity together, right? So, so we know by all that's created that there's a beautiful, intelligent God. Now, here's one, another thing to think about God, the people that say they don't know if God exists. If there is a supreme being, the supreme being of necessity would be superior to the best human that we can imagine. So we can imagine some pretty sweet, nice, wonderful, kind, honest, generous people, but that would mean that the Creator is even better than them. Therefore, with just using this reasoning faculty that God has given to us as image bearers, we can know that there's a wonderful, eternal, almighty first cause, an almighty being, who is also character-wise better than the best human. You've just discovered Christ by that small reasoning uh, exercise. And so when people say, that, ah, I don't know if God's there, and, you know, I don't know if, you know, that, that's, that's a choice. That is not a rational place. Nevertheless, it makes us very fearful of vulnerability because we're not certain if God's there, so we say, and if he's there, we're not certain that he really cares enough, enough. We sometimes think that he doesn't really understand what I'm going through or what I'm feeling or what I'm afraid of. So all this makes us very afraid to be vulnerable. Now, uh, there's, there's a passage I should have shared with you from Romans 3 that just talks about our lack of trusting God. It's from Romans 3.11. It says, no one understands, no one trusts in God. All of them have turned away. And that's, that's been the history of humanity starting in the Garden of Eden. Now, the rest of the message, I want to try to take us to a different place. So, okay, now that we understand, and, and I, I don't think I told anybody in here anything new, okay? I think we all understood we're afraid of being vulnerable because of pain and because of evil and because we're not so sure about God, what we can trust Him for and so forth. Probably all of us knew that. But now I want to take us to using that understanding so that we can stand I said in another series of messages repeatedly, God wants us to understand so that we can stand what we must, in fact, endure, go through, and we can do so in a very profitable, uh, effective way. So the rest of the message will be dedicated to that. So how do, we, how do we stand, living in this age, where we are vulnerable and we don't, we don't like it, uh, like the series, Naked and Afraid? You know, we don't. You ever think about that thing? They're they're in the garden and they're naked. Now I'm, I'm not trying to be crude here, but 
I mean, myself, if I just get a pebble in my shoe, I, I got to take the shoe off. How many of you got sissy feet like me? I'll, I'll be honest with you. I, I got sissy feet. I'm a city boy. Uh, first 30 years of my life, I live in Washington, D.C., so I, I have sissy feet. Some of you, some of you are country folk, and you do not have sissy feet. You can walk on hot, hot, hot coals, and it wouldn't even burn your feet. Be honest. How many are, you're a country boy, country girl. You got tough feet. You can walk on anything. You can walk on gravel. Okay. But Adam and Eve are in that garden, and, you know, they're not clothed. Uh, they didn't have any clothes on, so there's no reason to believe that he had built a house or furniture, which means if you sit down and you're Adam and Eve, you've got to sit down on a rock. And unless God had smoothed all the rocks, I mean, I'm, I'm just, my imagination goes, I'm just thinking that might be uncomfortable. But something, something was there that enabled them to not be hurt, wounded. Now, I, I suggested in another message, it could have been that they were enveloped in, a, in an energy field, uh, a kind of a Shekinah glory thing that protected them may have been something entirely different but anyway i digress let me go back so how do we stand uh, up during this time when we are vulnerable but we don't like it well the first thing that i think god wants us to do and we can do this is is a reinterpretation of pain reinterpreting pain now now this is this is bigger than it might seem on the surface I want to suggest to you that if we, if we think that there is a purpose, a clear purpose, a good goal that comes at the end of the pain, like, like my man right there, you, you're, you're in mixed martial arts, right? So, so you endure lots of pain in training, and, but you know you're getting better uh, at it, and, and, and you, know, you feel like it. I mean, look at him. How many would like to look like that? I mean, this dude is, you know, he's in shape. So... So other people they want to be marathoners and so they know there's pain in that there's physical pain building up that endurance and so forth how many of you have recently been to the dentist and when i say recently i mean like in the past two years you've been to the dentist in the past two years because i know covid messed everything up all right how many of you love it you just love when it's your time to go to the dentist i love the sound of that drill on my teeth i just can't i love no we all hate the dentist probably dentists and lawyers are the two most hated people alive except for maybe preachers i don't know but <laughs> But we go to the dentist, nevertheless. How many ladies in here have had babies? Let me see your hands. Okay. Did it hurt? <laughs> okay. It was painful. All of the models I just gave you, there was a purpose in the pain, whether it's training for mixed martial arts or running a marathon or whether it's going to the dentist or whether it's having a baby. There, there, there's purpose. And so when there's a sufficient purpose, it doesn't mean we like the pain. We try to avoid it. But nevertheless, when there's a sufficient purpose, we can... We can stand the pain. We, we know there's, a, there's something coming at the end that we consider worthwhile. We're making value-based decisions that give us the ability, the capacity to endure pain that we normally wouldn't. Look, look at this couple verses. This is written by the Apostle Paul, Spirit of God, using Paul again and again, 13 books in the New Testament. Romans 8.18, he says, Now I'm sure, notice, he says, I'm sure. This is a guy who met Jesus, resurrected Jesus, and was converted by it. He was caught up into the third heaven. He had been there, saw what was there. He says, now I'm sure of this. The sufferings we endure now are not even worth comparing to the glory that is coming. Sufferings now, glory that is coming. He was sure. He had been to heaven and back. He was sure about the future. The glory that is coming and will be revealed where? Notice, in us, not to us. Now, the to us is true, too, but it's in us. What Paul is talking about are these resurrection bodies that we will get when Christ returns. 
And when the first resurrection occurs, we will receive a resurrection body like the one that Jesus had. Remember how cool it was? He could, he could dematerialize and materialize in a room. He could sail up in heaven. You know, gravity didn't hold him. But he could still eat fish with his buddies, too. And, and so it, it just was the best of all things. And Paul is saying, you, if I could just somehow explain to you what this resurrection body is going to bring, you're going to laugh at the things that cause you pain now. When we can reinterpret pain, and we see it's got a purpose, it's got an ending that's desirable at the end, it enables us to endure it a little bit better. Here's another one that kind of says the same thing, slightly different. Paul, once again, 2 Corinthians 4, 17, he says, you see the short-lived pains of what? He's saying, a life, a life, your whole life full of pain. You live to be 100 years old. He's saying all the pain you'll ever experience in 100 years or 200 years, however long you live, he says all of it, it's creating for us in eternal glory. Now, wait a minute. It's life, short-lived pains, just this life, 100 years or less, but it's creating in eternal glory. That's disproportionate reward, an eternal glory that does not compare to anything we, what? Anything we know here. Paul is saying, you guys, again, this is a guy that was caught up to heaven. He had been there. He says, you have no idea. He says, the, the, vo the human vocabulary doesn't possess the language to let you know that the sufferings you endure now and you stay faithful to God, he's going to reward that stuff. He's keeping track of that stuff. Things you've long forgotten, he is keeping track of, and he is going to reward you not just reward you, he's going to reward you disproportionately. You, you maybe suffered a little bit, he's going to reward you a lot. That's just the way our God is, it's the way he does things. And so Paul is saying, tuck this truth away. Now the man knew what he was talking about. When he wrote 2 Corinthians, he had been serving Jesus for about 22 years. He lives a total of 32 years as a servant of Jesus. Read sometime on your own 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 25 through 33. He lists the things that he himself had suffered in his first 20 years of being a follower of Jesus. It's shocking. It's just shocking. You and I will never experience such things. But Paul is thinking of what he experienced, and he's saying, but what I've seen on the other side, he says, there's no language, no language to tell you. If you and I internalize this truth, trust that God is faithful, what he says in his word, he will certainly fulfill in our lives. It just gives us this new degree of strength Encouraged to live through this uncomfortable vulnerability that we really have to live through in this life. So reinterpreting pain, the second thing we can do is recognize the limits of evil. Evil has a short shelf life. And you hate evil, and I hate evil. I am tired. The older I get, the more tired I get of evil. The more my soul cries out, your kingdom come, your will be done on this earth as in heaven. But nevertheless, evil has a limitation. Look at this verse from Revelation 21, verse 4. It says, he, this is future when the, cre the creation of the new heavens and new earth, it says, this is the entrance into the eternal state of things. He, meaning God, will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. For all of those things, mourning and crying and pain to be passed away, that means no more evil. Evil has a short shelf life. It's not going to be here forever. We need to remind ourselves of that because evil does make us feel very vulnerable and rightly so to a degree. Now, 
I'm going to share a statement with you that I've shared a lot when I've, I've done some teaching, particularly Bible, the Bible institutes. But here it is. God is allowing evil for a little while so that he can abolish it fully forever. Now, some of you are thinking, he's God. He can abolish it anytime he wants. What do you mean, Randy, abolish it fully forever? What do you mean he's got to allow it for a little while so that he can abolish it forever? I want you to consider something. When sin originated, when evil started, it started in a perfect environment. It started in heaven. It didn't start on this earth. It was Lucifer who becomes Satan that turned against God, who rejected him, who decided he wanted his will. He wanted to be equal with God. Listen, some of us think that if I finally get a perfect body and a perfect mind and perfect emotions and I'm in a perfect environment, I'll never be tempted to sin again. <laughs> How do you explain heaven? The angels were perfect beings. Satan was a perfect being until he used his free will that God had given him as an image bearer. God made angels and humans in his own will, and he exercised his will against him. So evil started in heaven in a perfect place. So I say all that to say this. Who is to say that when you and I receive our resurrection bodies and we're perfected and when there's a new heaven and a new earth, who is to say that humans or other angels will not use their free will and once again rebel against God and introduce evil? I bet you've never thought of that before. But here's why it will never happen. God has allowed evil for a little while so that he can abolish it forever. How's he going to abolish it forever? Let me give you a silly illustration that will seal this in your head. If I had a, a Coke up here, and, and you happen to be a Coke drinker, you like Coke, and you were thirsty, and it was icy, and it looked delicious, and I offered it to you, you would drink it, okay? But if you saw me pour what you knew to be deadly poison into the Coke, and so I pour the poison in, you know this is instant death for anybody that drinks it. And then I say to you, hey, you want, you want, want this Coke? You're, you're going to laugh at me. You're going to say, Randy, you're a fool. I'm not going to drink that Coke. You're, you're, it's killed me instantly. Oh, come on. It's good. It's icy. It's delicious. You know Coke is good. You, you could not be tempted. Could I tempt you to drink poison if you knew it was poison? Can I see the hands of anybody that said, Randy, I don't know. I might take it. <laughs> no, you wouldn't. Okay? You wouldn't because you have illumination. You know this is death. You know this is deadly. You know no good thing comes. You have expanded experience and understanding but now I could take your four-year-old nephew or three-year-old nephew or niece who cannot read who doesn't have the same experience and I could pour that poison in there and they let's say don't even know what poison is maybe let's say they're at the young age where they don't know and I could say hey little Johnny little Martha you want this coke and little Johnny little Martha would take the coke right because they don't know how bad it will be when this poison gets in them. Listen, God, when he first created image-bearing beings, he knew that angels and humans would misuse the freedom that he gave us. But he still wanted to, to give the greatest gift he could give, which is to make beings that had the capacity to experience life on the level that he himself does with full knowledge that we were going to misuse it. And he knew... He knew that in order to stop it, to bring free will beings to the point that they would still be free will forever, certain things would have to occur. One of the things is he would allow evil so that we would see for ourselves what it brings. We would experience it. 
We've lived in it. We are immersed in it. We have felt the agony that evil brings. We feel the terror. We feel the insecurity, all the things that it brings. The angelic community, they have seen it themselves. They have experienced it at least emotionally and from a distance visibly. The second thing was this. God then allowed himself to be vulnerable. He made himself smaller and more vulnerable so that he could show his greater greatness to us all. What do you mean, Randy? Listen, just because God's almighty doesn't mean that he's necessarily all good, but God proved that he is not just almighty, he's all good when he came in the form of Jesus and sacrificed himself on the cross for those that he knew would reject him and, of course, those that he knew would not. So, so God has abolished evil by allowing it. We, we, when we get to heaven, we have, will have experienced it to such a degree. We'll never be temptable again. We'll still be free. Humans will never be temptable again because we've all experienced the trauma of evil. Angels will never be temptable again. You see, prior to that, they didn't know what evil was. It didn't exist. So God in his genius has endured the agony of vulnerability himself. You read in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, it says, when... When people were multiplying on earth, it says that the thoughts of men's hearts were only evil continuously. And then it says it grieved God at his heart. God is not detached. He, too, is vulnerable and suffering when he sees the damage that we do to ourselves and we do to one another. So evil, if we remind ourselves that evil has a short shelf life, it's going to be completely expunged from the universe and yet the universe is still going to be full of free will beings. That helps us now when we see it to just remind ourselves this, this too will pass. This too will end. And finally, what helps us to endure the vulnerability that we must live with without fearing it in an inordinate or unhealthy way is just remembering the trustworthiness of God. And this, this is big. This, this is where I really want to bring you through the whole message. Let me share a verse with you. It's from 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul once again. And if you were to read the verses to go before it and do so on your own sometime, he talks about how he was in such a dire set of circumstances in the city of Ephesus that he thought maybe he was going to die. He, he was just at the end of his rope, and God comes through and rescues him. But he says this, he says, He rescues us from such deadly peril, and he will rescue us. Notice the repeated use of the word rescue. He rescued us from such deadly peril, and he will rescue us again. The one in whom we have placed our hope will indeed do what? You read it to me. Continue to rescue us. And Pete asked you at the early part of the service, he said, how many of you have had God come through for you, and, and he rescued you from something? Now, we didn't know we were going to do that. It's just the way it worked out. But I'm going to ask the same question again. How many of you you can look back in your life now, and it might have been a physical thing, it might have been an illness, it might have been a relational thing, that you thought, man, this is a heartbreaker, I'll never, I'll never be able to breathe normal again, I'll never have a happy day in my life. Something, it might have been economical, it might, economic, it might have been some other thing, but God somehow came through when you had pretty much, or you were close to losing hope, and you, you just don't exactly know how it happened, and he rescued you, and here you are. How many have you actually experienced that? Folks, I'm telling you, I could not number, I could not number, <laughs> could not number the times that God rescued me. I live in light of this truth. I know it's, it's totally, completely trustworthy. And I'll tell you something else I've learned, and this is very uncomfortable. 
I don't know why, or maybe I do to a degree, but one of the, the th- truths is, is that God will often wait until we're literally going down for the third time. It feels like all hope is gone, and it looks like this one's going to take me under. This one's going to destroy me, whatever, whatever your term might be. And it's just then that God steps in. It, it's just this extraordinary experience. Each time, it deepens your confidence and your trust in God. Each time, it gives you a bit more boldness to be vulnerable and yet to be bold in your trust in God, in, tr- in Christ. So the trustworthiness of God, if we remember that, it helps us to be vulnerable in a healthy way um, while we're enduring some unhealthy feelings about vulnerability as well. I'm going to close with um, a quote by Mother Teresa. And the whole thing, if you listen behind what she says, it's the notion that we're vulnerable and, and it doesn't always work out right. When, when, when that scripture said he rescues us, you don't need rescuing unless you're in trouble. So here we go. Mother Teresa says, people are often unreasonable, illogical, and self-centered. Forgive them anyway. She's saying, you know, people are going to wound you. Forgive them. You're, gonna, you're vulnerable. If you're kind, people may accuse you of selfish ulterior motives. Be kind anyway. If you're successful, you will win some false friends and some true enemies. Succeed anyway. If you're honest and frank, people may cheat you. Be honest and frank anyway. What you spend years building, listen to the vulnerability in this one. What you spend years building, someone could destroy overnight. Build it anyway. If you find serenity and happiness, they may be jealous. Be happy anyway. The good you do today, people will often forget tomorrow. Do good anyway. Give the world the best you have, and it may never be enough. Give the world the best you've got anyway. Now, I want to close the way I did in the first service, and if I could go back to that 2 Corinthians verse. Three times we have rescue. He rescued us from such deadly peril. He'll rescue us again. He'll continue to rescue us. And here's how I ended the first service. I said, will you, will you join with me in this? I'm going to say one of these phrases for you. I'll say, he rescued us. And then you'll say, like the sound of many waters, he rescued us. And then the second time, I'm going to say it a little louder. And I'm going to say, and he rescued us again. And you'll say, he rescued us. But please don't say this unless you, you feel it in your heart and you know that it's the truth. And then the last time, we're going to say, and he'll continue to rescue us. And you'll say, and you're shouting by that time. You're out of your seat, you're shouting. He'll continue to rescue us. If the Spirit of God says, yes, this is truth in your heart, let's join together and do this. Paul said it. The Spirit of God said it. I say it to you this morning. He rescued us. He rescued us. And he'll rescue us again. And he'll rescue us again. And he'll continue to rescue us. And he'll continue to rescue us. Come on. Yes. Amen. Amen. We can live with vulnerability and we can still have healthy transparency if we internalize these truths. Let's pray. Father, I pray for anyone that's here today that has never for the first time truly put their trust in you as you've revealed yourself in your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. May this be the day they will trust in you, Lord Jesus, and become your follower and follow you fully, freely, and forever. 
Spirit of God, may you cause all of us to leave here today with a new boldness that we will live with vulnerability and transparency with absolute confidence that you will continue to rescue us. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.